The Bible reading this morning is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Living in Australia, I think it's actually difficult for us to comprehend what it would be like to be persecuted for your faith, for simply believing in Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really can't imagine what it would be like to live in a country where it was illegal to be a Christian. Or a country where Christians are persecuted for no other reason, for nothing else that they've done other than saying that they have their trust in Jesus. But it certainly happens around our world. Let me give you a few examples of the countries where it's considered to be most difficult to be a Christian. There's an organisation called Open Doors and each year they publish a report on the 50 countries where persecution of Christians is most serious around our world. Each year they publish a map showing where those 50 countries are. Uh, The dark red colour are the ones where there is serious persecution going through to light red where there is just sporadic persecution of Christians. But the top three countries, the countries where persecution of Christians is considered to be worse, first of all is North Korea. Uh, North Korea, uh, the worship of the Kim family, um, Kim Il-sung, Kim Il-jong and Kim Jong-un, the latest ruler of the country, has become the national religion of the country and to worship anything or anyone other than them is considered to be treason. 
here's the picture of the statues of being, uh, this is Kim Il-sung, the first leader of the country, and then Kim Il-jong, uh, the grandfather and father of the current leader of the country. Uh, because of the incredibly closed nature of the country, it's hard to get the numbers on, uh, on how many people are being held in what they call political prison camps. Um, there's a, probably around about 200,000 people being held in camps, and of that 200,000, somewhere between 50 and 70,000 of those people are there simply because they claim to be Christians. A quarter of the people in those prison camps are there simply for claiming to be followers of Jesus. North Korea is considered to be the hardest place in the world to live out your Christian life. Next on the list comes Somalia on the Horn of Africa, considered to be the second hardest place in the world to live out your Christian life. There are 10 million people in Somalia. There are believed to be less than a few hundred Christians left in Somalia today. In recent years, there have been cases where Christians have simply been killed on the spot just for believing in Jesus, just for professing to be a Christian. Uh, Here's one of the main cathedral in Mogadishu, which at one time was a beautiful city, but now Christianity has been all but removed from that city and almost removed from the country. The third hardest place is the place we've seen quite a lot in the news in recent years and that in in recent months and that is Iraq. Uh, You probably saw the news stories from June last year where ISIS came into the city of Mosul, a population of 600,000 people and predominantly a Christian city. On the 19th of July, ISIS told those living in Mosul that they had three choices. They could convert to Islam, they could pay a fine of around about 400 US dollars for belonging to a religion other than Islam, or they could be executed. On the 25th of July, just six days later, uh, Mosul was declared to be free of Christians. They're not exactly sure how many were killed. Around 500,000 were forced to flee from the city. Uh, Here's some tragic photos, and it's hard to actually pick ones that aren't a little bit too graphic to show you of what actually happened in Mosul. Again, I can't get my head around that. I can't begin to understand what it would be like to live in those circumstances, to live in a place where you are simply being persecuted for your faith in Jesus. Well, this morning we're looking at a passage in Acts where the persecution is going to get a little more serious. In fact, we'll see the first man lose his life for his faith in Jesus. But before we get to that, we've actually got a little internal problem at the beginning of chapter 6, trouble inside and outside. We saw it last week and we see it again in the passages that we're looking at today. This problem is one of those kind of good problems to have. The church has grown so rapidly um, that they're really struggling to keep things organised. The numbers of the early church at this stage were quite enormous and was becoming a bit of a logistical problem. Thousands of people had come to faith in Jesus, many of them from outside Jerusalem, and they have stayed in Jerusalem. 
to become a part of this new Christian community there. They're living together, they're sharing their resources together. This is what Luke tells us in in Acts, sorry, Uh, let me read it for you. All the believers were one in heart and mind. There were no needy persons among them for from time to time. Those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. One in heart and mind, Luke tells us. No needy people amongst them, Luke tells us. The apostles handled the distribution of things. But then we get to chapter 6 and we read this in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, the Grecian Jews are Jewish Christians who've come from outside of Jerusalem and there are those Jewish Christians within Jerusalem who are now, well, there's division among them. There's a bit of a problem has arisen and some people are in need. There are people who are being neglected. We're no longer one in heart and mind and we have needy people amongst us is what Luke is telling us. It's amazing the potential that such a small thing has to divide a group of people, to divide a group of Christians. It's amazing the potential that these sorts of things have to distract churches from what they ought to be doing, that this issue can end up becoming the main issue and what soaks up all of the time of the church. But I suppose it's just because churches are made up of frail human beings just pretty much like us. Well, what the apostles do when they become aware of this situation is that they tell the people to nominate seven people to handle the food distribution to make sure that things are done fairly. And the apostles say that they want to set themselves aside for the preaching of the word and prayer. That this has all become too big. They can't keep handling the distribution of things. They want to set aside seven people who will be able to do it. It's interesting the characteristics that they look for in among these seven people. I mean, the job description doesn't say previous experience in food distribution and essential. It doesn't actually say that on there. It just says that they're to be people who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wise. That's all they're looking for. Seven are chosen and we're given their names. And I think one of the reasons that we're actually given the names of those seven is that two of them are going to feature now in the next few chapters of the book of Acts. And they're not featuring for their food distribution abilities. No sooner do the food distributors get appointed than we find one of them is actually upsetting the religious leaders. Stephen has been upsetting some of the Jewish people who are from out of town uh, by the things that he's been saying and doing. Uh, Have a look at what we read, chapter 6 and verse number 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the Holy Spirit by whom he spoke. Did you know that's exactly what Jesus said would happen? Back in Luke's Gospel, Jesus said this. He said, But before all this, they will hand you over and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons on account of my name. 
But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Stephen spoke in a way that they couldn't contradict him. They they had to agree with what he was saying because he was telling them the truth. But the amazing thing in this story is that after they can't contradict him, after they know they have to agree with what he's saying, what do they do? Well, they do exactly what they tried to do with Jesus. They round up some false witnesses, people who'll say that Stephen had been saying something that he really hadn't been saying. They'll accuse him of things that he never said. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. They're almost identical to the charges that are levelled against Jesus. While Stephen finally appears before the Sanhedrin, beginning of chapter 7, and he's just asked one question, are these charges true? And from the beginning of chapter 7, Stephen gives us a speech that it kind of is almost a history of Israel that he outlines for them. He talks about Abraham, he talks about Moses, he talks about Joseph. And the answers, well, they're not exactly clear at first glance, but he is answering the charges that are levelled against him. He leaves them in absolutely no doubt that he has nothing but the greatest of respect for Moses. And he quotes from the scriptures God's very own words to talk about the temple. He uses their shared history to point them to Jesus. Now, Stephen's speech focuses on three main characters, Abraham, Moses, and Joseph. But I'm going to focus just on two of them because they have something in common that Stephen wants to try and point out. Let me point out some highlight verses for you. If you've got your Bible open, chapter 7, verse 25, Stephen says this, Moses thought that his people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. And then down to verse 35, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. Verse 37, God promised that Moses would send another prophet. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send a prophet like me from among your own people. And then verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, can you see where he's going with this? Can you see the point that he wants to make here? Stephen's trying to point out to them that our our forefathers, the people of Israel, they have a nasty habit of rejecting the ones that God sends to save them, don't they? God sends these people to rescue them, but they reject those people. They did it with Moses, didn't they? And they did it with Joseph as well. I mean, remember the story of Joseph? Rejected by his own brothers, thrown into a ditch, 
and ultimately sold as a slave. They just want to reject him. They want to get rid of him completely. Yet God uses him to save them. He's the one who's in Egypt. He's the one who can rescue not just not just the people of Israel and not even just the Egyptians, but, but pretty much the whole world at that time. Moses, rejected by his own people, yet used by God as a rescuer. Joseph, rejected by his own people, but used as God by a rescuer. Not hard to see where he's going to end up with this, is it? Jesus, sent by God as a rescuer, and you've rejected him. Well, this is more than the Jewish leaders could bear. They're furious with him. They can't believe that he would have the gall to stand up in front of them and tell them that they have rejected God's saviour. And as if to cap it off, Stephen tells them that he sees heaven open and that he sees Jesus, the saviour that God has sent, the one that they had rejected, standing at the right hand of God. Verse, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of God. 